Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, we have our second half of a two-parter on the storied criminal history of Score Strip Club in New York City. If you haven't listened to part one yet, pause this episode now and listen to that one first. Otherwise, you'll be more confused than me watching the film Saltburn. Seriously, though, guys, what was that? And if you want to take your listening experience to the next level, go to the truecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Check out photos of scores in its 90s heyday, plus the mafia members who all fought for a piece of the club. All right, so last week, we talked all about the launch of Scores, New York's first high-end gentleman's club. We heard about lawyer-turned-club owner Michael Blutrick's clever maneuvers around New York City's prudish laws against bare breasts. We also learned about the perils of doing business under mafia control. And left off the story with Michael Blutrick getting a knock on the door from the FBI. The feds had heard all about Michael's fraud scheme with the Heritage Life Insurance Company down in Florida. So, facing some serious jail time, Michael agrees to turn state's witness against members of the Gambino crime family who were extorting him. We're all caught up now and time to go back to the club. Well, technically, Michael Blutrick's office above the Scores nightclub. The FBI outfits the space with hidden cameras and recording devices. And these devices aren't recording all the time, of course, because this is pre-Patriot Act, so the feds just can't record anyone they wish anytime they want. Not that they do that now. (coughs) So Michael needs to physically flip a switch to record any conversations that are pertinent to the mafia extortion case. So you can imagine that action could look rather sus. 
But Michael finds a clever workaround. When he knows a mobster is on their way up to his office, he pretends he's taking a giant dookie in the bathroom, when instead he's actually hitting the record button on the cameras and microphones. Michael even caps off his charade by spraying some air freshener to add to the realism. And he goes on to successfully record several incriminating conversations and money exchanges in his office. But these meetings are fairly short and sweet, and they only implicate a couple of low-level wise guys. The feds need Michael to go bigger. So Michael plans a dinner for himself along with his club and law firm partner, Andrew Perlstein, to go out for a nice Italian dinner with his mafia friend slash extorter, Michael Sturgio. The feds wire Michael Blutrick up with something called an F-bird and give him a boxy cell phone with a recording device hidden inside. Between the big, bulky cell phone and the big bulk in his pants, Michael isn't feeling very confident about this undercover operation. But he's told not to worry, assured that there are a couple of agents waiting outside, listening in, ready to pounce if anything goes wrong. All Michael or Andrew have to do is say the code phrase, quote, I think I'm gonna puke. I know. It sounds like a bad script written for a made-for-TV movie about mobsters called The Booby Trap, colon, Confessions of a Strip Club Stool Pigeon. But I assure you this was all real, and what happened next is a true crime comedy of errors. Mike Sergio and Andrew Perlstein get hammered at dinner. Michael Blutrick keeps getting the 911 page on his beeper and needs to excuse himself several times from the table because even though the agents can hear everything, apparently the recording device keeps malfunctioning. Yeah, and between seemingly taking all those dookies at his office and having to be excused so much from the table, Sergio's getting suspicious and asks Blutrick if he has something wrong with his plumbing. Blutrick makes up a quick lie, says something about hemorrhoids, and Sergio says, No way! Me too! Hemorrhoid brothers! Ugh, more on this later. At this point, Sergio is completely sauced and spills the twisted tea about how the whole Gambino crime family organization works, who controls what, and where all the money from scores is going. The material is absolute informant gold. Blue Trick can't believe it. He's thrilled that he's getting this all on tape, although his leg is feeling pretty hot. Then Sergio orders everyone dessert, and that's when a drunk Andrew Pearlstein utters the phrase, Uh, I think I'm gonna puke. Michael Bluetrick is freaking out. A couple of agents are about to blow into the restaurant any minute, and this whole operation will be blown. He says, no, Andrew, you're not really gonna puke. You're just kidding, right, buddy? But Pearlstein is oblivious. No, really, I really think I'm gonna puke. While Pearlstein and Sergio are drunkenly guffuffling around, Blue Trick whispers into the F-bird, You guys, he's wasted. There's no emergency. We're good. The FBI agents never stormed into the restaurant. Sergio leaves and Pearlstein and Blue Trick pick up the bill. They rendezvous with the agents at the prearranged location. Michael has his F-bird removed and realizes the wire had been burning his leg the whole time. Oh, and none of that gold material was recorded. 
The FBI only heard bits and pieces of the conversations, so they're going to need Michael and Andrew to get all of that info out of Sergio again, okay? Thanks! Dude, I was getting stress-induced ulcers just listening to the Scores audiobook. I can't imagine the pressure of going through this. How in the world are they going to ask these probing questions of Sergio again without him getting suspicious? Well, as it turns out, Sergio was so wasted at the first dinner, he forgot their entire conversation. So they get him plastered again, and then he goes into even more explicit details of the inner workings of the Gambino crime family. And this time, everything was recorded. Now, the feds want to get some of the higher-ups on tape, so Michael needs to make some new friends in high places. Next, he goes to the world-famous Rayo's Italian restaurant in New York City. Yes, that Rayo's. An Italian-American institution that's been around since 1896, one of the oldest family-owned restaurants in the U.S. The original location has like 10 tables and regulars have squatters' rights, so you need an invitation to get a meal there. Or you can try to make a reservation and be on the wait list for like two-plus years. Every table has been booked for dinner every single night that they've been open for the past 38 years. There is no set menu. You get what they serve you that night and love it, okay? And yeah, I know, it sounds wicked overhyped, a bunch of hoop jumping just to get some red sauce. But I don't care, you guys. I would give my left meatball to have dinner at Rayo's. Seriously, whose bread do I have to butter? Ugh. Well, Michael was lucky enough to get an invite to Rayo's to meet with Sergio and an old-timer made member from the Lucchese crime family named Angelo Cheesecake Urgentano. For those of you who aren't familiar, the requirements to become a made man goes as follows. Number one, you need to be 100% Italian with direct lineage to the old country on both your mother and your father's side. Number two, you're required to take the blood oath of omerta, meaning a vow of silence, a promise never to betray your brothers, aka don't be a rat fink. Number three, you gotta make your bones by killing an enemy, proving your loyalty to the family. Anyway, those are the basic requirements, so Urgentano is a big deal. He wants Michael Bluetrick to work his law firm connections to Andrew Cuomo and father-slash-governor Mario Cuomo to help get his son out of prison. You see, Angelo Cheesecake Urgentano's son, Joseph, a.k.a. Joey Cupcakes, was serving time for killing a member of the Colombo crime family. This request came totally out of the blue. Michael wasn't expecting it, but he bites on the opportunity and tells Angelo he may be able to bribe a judge for $100,000. They arrange to meet with the money in a few weeks where he can get the whole thing on tape. Fast forward to the next meeting with Michael, Sergio, and old man Angelo Cheesecake Urgentano. They are gathered around a table counting money, and Michael is recording the whole thing with his hidden F-bird wire in his pants. When all of a sudden, old man Angelo spills water onto Michael's lap, then puts his hand on his leg and starts feeling his way up towards his groined area. Clearly, the guy is searching for a wire, and he's quickly approaching it. Michael panics, but then pulls a clever move. 
he returns the favor and puts his hand on Angelo's thigh and starts working his way up to his cheesecake factory. Up, oh, no, no, I took it too far. And so did Michael. Old man Angelo turns beet red and recoils away from Michael, who feigns confusion and then shrugs off the whole thing. Angelo Urgentano continued to work with Michael on his son's case, but he kept his physical distance from that point on. And later on, Michael gives Sergio a ride home in his car and continues to record him. Sergio complains that Scores has become the Silva Tuna. Everyone wants a piece of that action. And Sergio is getting pushed out. Mafia control is about to be transferred to infamous Gambino capo regime, Greg De Palma. Greg had his hand in the kitty at strip clubs up and down the East Coast. And this potential merger with Scores would be a lucrative $20 million deal, which surely would require a personal sit-down meeting. So the meeting takes place, and for some reason, I guess hashtag mob rules, Michael is required to pay $100,000 for this exchange of power. It was originally supposed to be $200,000, but I guess he got a deal. So $100,000 from Scores to be paid directly to John Gotti Jr., Bingo, we've got little Gotti for racketeering. Michael's really racking up the big names, and next he's going to meet with the Colombo boss, Alphonse Alleyboy Persico, at his office above scores. Michael gets wired up for the meeting, but he has a bad feeling about this one. Alleyboy and his goons are a few hours late, and meanwhile, scores is bumping that night. A bunch of Michael's friends show up and want to party, including a young Leonardo DiCaprio, who was there with his no-name friends, Toby Maguire and magician David Blaine, and no, I am not kidding. Leo asks Michael Bluetrick if they can all party together in the crow's nest. Michael relents, figuring Alley Boy Persico is going to be a no-show. He sends the boys up to the secret VIP crow's nest and takes off his wire because Michael doesn't want to record Leonardo and his friends doing anything nefarious after all. And just as he's sitting down with his pussy posse friends, Michael gets word that Alphonse Alleyboy Persico and his men have arrived and are ready to meet with him in his office. So Michael excuses himself and unlocks the door to his office when all of a sudden one of Ali Boy's boys throws Michael down on the desk and strip searches him while another goon aims a loaded pistol at his head. Any wires on him and Michael would have been dead. Miraculously though, Michael was clean because only a few moments earlier he took off his F-Bird recording device. Michael credits Leonardo DiCaprio for saving his life that night. So yeah, things are getting sketchy for Michael Bluetrick. He's getting less face-to-face with Sergio, but he still needs to get more info from him to implicate John Gotti Jr. But lucky for Michael, these two have that other commonality, hemorrhoids. Michael decides to take Sergio up on his offer to take him to an appointment with his proctologist buddy in Connecticut. The feds wire up Michael's car and they record the conversation on their drive to Connecticut. Everything goes well. They get all the info they need. But then they arrive to the proctologist office and Sergio insists on going into the exam room with Michael. 
At this point, probably from all the stress, Michael really does have hemorrhoids and he doesn't mind having an exam. But then both Sergio and the proctologist insist on, quote, taking care of them right then and there on the table. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail other than to say this procedure sounded very painful and required rubber bands. Yeah, the whole ordeal was excruciating and embarrassing for Michael, and he was the butt of the joke at the FBI debriefing meeting the next day. It's crazy, man. Michael has a million close calls. At one point, a mobster gets in a fight with Michael's business partner, Andrew Perlstein. The mobster starts running his mouth at a dinner with other mafiosos, randomly accusing Andrew of being a mole. A chain of mob gossip ensues, and word gets back to Sergio, who brandishes a gun on Michael Bluetrick, asking if it's true, if he and Perlstein were informants. Michael does a litigator-style three-way phone call with a mob gossiper who admits that the original rumor spreader was mad about a bet he had made with Andrew and was simply threatening to accuse him of being an informant but had no evidence to support the rumor. So again, Michael manages to weasel his way out of that one too. I can't believe he actually managed to get through this entire undercover operation. But the stress takes its toll on him. He's starting to lose his grip with reality. Even if he does make it out alive, Michael Bluetrick was still facing at least a little prison time for his involvement in the National Heritage Insurance fraud case in Florida. And he will have to pay all of his life savings towards restitution. And he'll have to leave his lifelong home, New York City, and enroll in witness protection, looking over his shoulder the rest of his life. But as long as the operation continued, Michael was a free man with lots of money. So he engages in risky behavior, going out every night, searching for hookups with random men. He doesn't know how much longer he can live his life like this, literally living on borrowed time. Then one day out of the blue, Michael gets a call from his FBI handler. The prosecutors were pulling the plug. They have everything they needed at that point to make their case. And arrests were about to be made. So Michael Bluetrick and Andrew Pearlstein had three days to settle their affairs and report to Florida for their court arraignment. But don't worry, the New York office had their backs. So Michael, Andrew, and their legal teams go down to Orlando to face off with prosecutor Judy Hunt. She seemingly had a personal vendetta against Andrew and Michael for their roles in the National Heritage Insurance fraud case. She wanted these guys to serve the maximum amount of prison time, even though the New York prosecutor's office offered Michael and Andrew the promise of a leaner sentence in exchange for their cooperation in the undercover case against the Gambino crime family. Attorney Art Lynch represented Michael, and he argued the case in front of U.S. District Judge Ann Conway. Lynch claimed that Andrew and Michael never would have risked their lives going undercover if it wasn't for the promise of a lesser sentence. The extortion and racketeering evidence they collected against the members of the mafia helped to curtail major corruption in New York City. They helped put together a landmark RICO case. The New York FBI office even credited Michael Bluetrick with being one of the most successful informants in U.S. history. He was credited with almost 40 convictions, including John Gotti Jr. 
Lynch argued that ignoring Pearlstein and Bluetrick's contributions and giving them the max sentence could de-incentivize potential future informants from working with federal prosecutors. But Judge Ann Conway was unmoved. In the end, both Andrew Pearlstein and Michael Bluetrick got the max of 16 years, the same sentence they would have gotten if they hadn't cooperated at all with the feds. I believe that they served the most time for a nonviolent fraud case in the state of Florida at that time. They served way more time than many of the convicted mobsters, many of whom were actual violent murderers. Michael Blutrick and Andrew Pearlstein were released in 2013, and instead of getting federal witness protection, they were each given a bus ticket back to New York City. Michael D. Blutrick goes on to write the book Scores, How I Opened the Hottest Strip Club in New York City, was extorted out of millions by the Gambino family, and became one of the most successful mafia informants in FBI history. This book is free for members on Audible, and I highly recommend it. Since he wrote this book, though, new accusations against Michael came out for crimes dating back to the 1980s. There are reports in the Daily Beast and the New York Post, both written in 2020, that Michael Blutrick has been accused of sexually abusing boys when he was a basketball coach at the Y. I believe there are still pending lawsuits against Michael Blutrick and the shorefront YMYWHA in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. That's all the news I have about it at this time. There haven't been any articles since 2021. As for scores, the strip club filed for bankruptcy after Michael's conviction in 1999. At that point, the business had incurred $1.7 million in debt, mostly due to being fleeced by the mafia. A new management team was put in place and they partnered with a video game company and the club's likeness was featured in the game BMX XXX, where players could unlock levels that featured images inside the score strip club. They experienced a renaissance even opening up a second location in Chelsea. Then in 2006, the new management team was indicted for tax evasion. Customers were being overcharged, and when I say overcharged, I'm talking by over like tens of thousands of dollars, and Scores dancers were being pressured into giving kickbacks to the club. It gets worse. In 2008, the Chelsea location had their license suspended after the club was accused of selling sex in the back VIP rooms. This was too much for the business, and the original location was closed on East 60th Street. The Chelsea location was shuttered for over two years, and then they reopened under new, new management. Like Scores Strip Club, the new class. But then, you guys, Scores made headlines again in 2014, when a few of the dancers took it upon themselves to drug and rob patrons. A cardiologist named Dr. Ziad Yunin accused Karina Pasuki, Samantha Barbash, Marcy Rosen, and Rosalind Keough of robbing him. The gals were arrested and admitted to drugging the doctor and racking up his Amex. I could tell you more about this, or you could watch the 2019 movie Hustlers starring J-Lo, Constance Wu, and Cardi B, amongst others. Yeah, dude, that movie was based on scores. Well, technically, it was based on the New York Magazine article based on scores that I'll link to in my newsletter. 
The real-life scheme and scores girls landed themselves in hot water. Their actions seemed to be sanctioned by the club, although there was never enough evidence to charge the new new scores owners. And now there are scores locations all over the country, including Vegas, Tampa, South Carolina, Palm Beach, and West 28th Street, New York, New York. They all average around three stars on Google. So yeah, I don't plan on going to scores unless I have a time machine to take me back to its heyday in 1992 when the nipples were covered with latex paint and I could rub shoulders with Dennis Rodman, Demi Moore, and America's sweetheart, Chuck Norris. Otherwise, I'm holding out for true paradise on Earth. A corner table at Rayo's Restaurant surrounded by baked clams, meatballs and red sauce, and spicy calamari. Ah, now that's what I call sexy. Yeah, yeah, we made it through this dirty operation. That was scores, everyone. What did you think? Anyone have any good scores stories or mob gossip? Share all the goods with me. Unless, of course, you took the oath of Omerta. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind of fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start the ranking, it looks like In the Dark is coming back with season three very soon. They just dropped their trailer. I'm so excited for this one. And I'm also looking forward to checking out Undercover, the Spy Cops from the BBC. So many great pods are back in abundance. I just want to throw them all up into the air and roll around in them like we're in the money. Ugh, such a great time out here in true crime podcast land. So here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Murder 101. Here's a summary from the show page. In a small Tennessee town, a local serial killer was caught by the most unlikely investigators a group of high school students led by their teacher, Alex Campbell. Throughout the course of one school semester, the class pieced together a 30-year-old mystery and identified the killer behind at least six brutal murders. Shockingly, while the Texas Bureau of Investigations publicly agrees with their theory, no charges have been filed against the murderer. While some sleuthing students already have graduated, they, along with a fresh crop of current high schoolers, still want to finish the assignment once and for all. As I said last week, this show isn't going to be for everyone due to its more homemade high school project feel and pacing. However, the content gets an A-plus grade from me. 
At one point in episode two, teacher Alex Campbell articulates what the students are getting out of this project. All of the important lessons, interdisciplinary subjects converge when the group comes together to solve this case. He is also articulating exactly why I'm passionate about true crime and why I'm sure so many of you are as well. A triumphant example of ethical true crime in Murder 101. At the number two spot, we have cover-up body brokers. Here's a reminder from the show page. For eight years, Megan Hess ran Sunset Mesa Funeral Home and in the small town of Monroe's, Colorado. She promised clients discounts on normally expensive cremations, a seeming kindness in a town where many are poor. But in the back of the funeral home, Megan's elderly mother, Shirley, was actually dismembering the dead. And then Megan was selling the body parts, heads, torsos, legs, to companies that claim to do medical research. In this latest episode, we go outside the funeral home and learn about the biz from a former body broker who spills all the disturbing details. You guys, it's basically a full episode of these things you didn't know you should be terrified of, like receiving contaminated donated tissue from a seller that forged the records. Ugh, cover-up body brokers continues to amaze me, even though it was unseated from the number one spot by a new reigning champ. This week at the number one spot, we have Dr. Death Bad Magic. Here's a synopsis from the show page. When a charismatic young doctor announces revolutionary treatments for cancer and HIV, patients from around the world turn to him for their last chance. As medical experts praise Serhat Gumruku's genius, the company he co-founded rockets in value to over half a billion dollars. But when a team of researchers makes a startling discovery, they begin to suspect the brilliant doctor is hiding a secret. Ah, uh, yes, season four of Dr. Death from the legendary Laura Beale. I am savoring this one. It's so good. I can't believe how recent all of this happened. Like, seriously, this story takes place after the first few seasons of Dr. Death have already aired. It's like, yo, Death Doctors, cut the crap. Laura Beale is on to you. She really knows how to pick them, too. This guy, ugh. His likes include magicians and going shirtless. Real piece of work. It sounds like we're in for another twisted ride on Dr. Death Bad Magic. Now for my miss of the week. We have Snapped Women Who Murder. Here's a rundown from the show page. For the first time ever, full Snapped episodes are now a podcast. Subscribe to this true crime podcast for the direct audio from the original Snapped episodes that have aired on Oxygen over the last 29 seasons and counting. Yeah, sometimes it's hard for me to single out a show for this segment, but not this week. This was an easy layup. I'm always seeing this dumb show in the top 20 on the charts, and it's the ire of my rage. I mean, of all the amazing shows out there we could be listening to, this one's gotta go. Especially after listening to Truer Crime's takedown of Snap's coverage of the Mindy Dodd case, I'm side-eyeing this whole production. 
This is superficial, sensationalist, and oh, it sounds like it's being narrated by an AI robot. And the audio levels are completely uneven. Ah, I should probably stop before I completely snap on Snapped. So instead, I'm going to shove it down my podcast waste disposer where it belongs. Find out next week if Dr. Death Magic Man will remain in the number one spot as the series continues or if a new show will cut in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast waste disposer. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation, especially Instagram where I make my own original dank memes. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding. Feeding.